You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Daniel chapter 1. If you use your phone for your Bible, then I encourage you to use the Version Bible app in there. If you go into the menu and click on the events section, you'll be able to see all the notes that we put up on the screen in here, but also some more notes and some other verses that you help you connect with. There's also a way to take notes in there and share things with others. So that's a great way for you to connect. But however you've got your Bible today, open with me to Daniel chapter 1, and we'll be studying there today. Well, please bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can come and gather in this place. We can seek you, Lord. We can gather online as well, and we can seek you. We can hear your word, Lord, and we can pursue you. We pray that today, Lord, you would speak to us, that we'd hear your voice, and Lord, you would do a transforming work in our lives. Lord, fill us with confidence and courage. Give us the strength and the, and the courage to do the things that you're calling us to do as well, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there were only five minutes left on the clock. The game was pretty much over, it was cold outside, as it usually is in Cleveland in January. So a lot of the fans started just heading for the parking lot to get a, a you know, jump on the traffic because the game was pretty much over, at least in their minds. I mean, it was clear that their team was obviously going to win, especially when their team, the home team, with five minutes left on the clock, had a, a seven-point lead. And when they kicked off, the ball took a good bounce, and it rolled to the, the opposing team's two-yard line. So there they were, backed up against their own end zone with five minutes left on the clock. It was pretty much finished, right? Except what happened right after that was something which has come to be known as one of the greatest moments in sports history. What happened is John Elway got under center and he led the Denver Broncos 98 yards down the field to score a touchdown in the final seconds of the 1987 AFC Championship game in a drive that has come to be known ever since as simply the drive. Well, I was just a little kid at the time when this happened. I don't remember watching it, of course. But since that time, I have watched the video of that game and of that drive specifically many times. I've watched it on YouTube. I've watched it on ESPN, sports highlights. But here's the thing. When I watch the video of that game, I have a very different experience than the people did who watched that game live as it was happening back in 1987. The people who watched that game unfold, they watched that game live, they were sweating bullets. They were nervous. You know, my grandmother, she was this very small, very sweet Irish lady. But every Sunday, I don't know what happened, she would just yell so much at the TV. She would go crazy. I'm sure it took years off of her life. She was always so angry at John way, right? And I just imagine my grandmother on that day. She was probably yelling at the TV, sweating bullets, getting nervous, walking around the house. Why? Well, because during that drive, there were drop passes. There was even a time when John Elway was sacked in the backfield, and that brought up third down and 18. It seemed like this was not going to happen. People were nervous as they watched the game. They're incredibly nervous. But now, when I watch the game all these years later, 
I don't get nervous at all. You know why? Because I know exactly how the game is going to end. I know that on third and 18, Elway's going to connect with Mark Jackson for a 20-yard gain and a first down. I know that the Broncos are going to score a touchdown in the final seconds of the game. They're going to make the extra point, and they're going to win the game. And because I know that the good guys are going to win, at least my good guys, that changes everything. You see, the dropped passes, the broken plays, Elway getting sacked in the backfield, it doesn't bother me at all. It doesn't even make me nervous. You know why? Because I know how the game's going to end. I know that in the end, they're going to win. And you know what? Those sacks, the, the broken plays, the missed passes, the third downs, they actually make watching the game that much more exciting because I know that they're going to win. It makes the miraculous win all that much more glorious. Now think about it. Isn't that also true about life? See, there are things in life that cause us anxiety and worry, whether it's things going on in society or things that are happening politically. Maybe it's things in your life personally that are going on in your life. But let me ask you this. What if you could know how it was all going to turn out in the end? What if you could know how everything is going to turn out in the end? Don't you think that would change how you live your life here and now? Don't you think that would cause you to worry less and rejoice more? Well, friends, I've got good news for you. That is exactly what God has given us in his word. What he's told us is that no matter what the score is on the scoreboard right now, you can know this. In the end, he is going to win. He has told us that in the end, sin and death and the devil will be defeated forever. And so even if the enemy has some short-term gains here and now, even if you experience some short-term losses here and now, the Bible tells us that in Christ, you are more than conquerors through him who loved you. Not only did he win the victory on your behalf, but God promises that he is even using the momentary setbacks and difficulties that you face for your good and for his greater purposes. And knowing that should change the way that you think about and interpret and respond to the things that happen around you, whether it's out in society at large or in your life personally. Here's the thing. Fear and pessimism, they make no sense if victory is guaranteed. So fear and pessimism make no sense when victory is guaranteed. It wouldn't make any sense for me to re-watch that game with John Elway and be, be all fearful and pessimistic. I know what's going to happen in the end, right? So fear and pessimism make no sense when victory is guaranteed. And in our study today, we're going to see a person who really understood this and lived it out in his life. His name was Daniel, and he lived at a time when things were looking really bad. Things were looking really bad. It really seemed as if the bad guys were winning. And yet Daniel knew that what God's word said was true. He knew that no matter how bad things might look at the moment, no matter what the score is on the scoreboard right now, God was going to keep his promise to redeem and to save his people, and that God had a purpose with allowing them to even go through the things that they were going through at the moment. And because Daniel knew those things, it enabled him to live faithfully and confidently in the midst of those very tumultuous times in which he lived. And the same will be true for us in the tumultuous times in which we live. 
The title of today's message is Thriving in Exile. Thriving in Exile. And here's what we're going to see in our study today. Here's your takeaway truth, your one-sentence summary of today's message that will also function as our outline as we go through this passage. You ready for it? Write it down. Memorize it. Later on today, when somebody asks you, what would you talk about at church today? This is what you're going to tell them. You ready? In exile, to thrive requires conviction, courage, and calling. In exile, to thrive requires conviction, calling, or conviction, courage, and calling. So let's take that sentence and break it down as we study our text. So first of all, in exile. That's the first part of the sentence. Well, Daniel 1 begins with these words. It says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now, just last week, we concluded our epic journey through the books of First and Second Kings by looking at chapter 24 and 25 of Second Kings. And there in Second Kings, we read about this attack against Jerusalem in, in Second Kings 24, about how Nebuchadnezzar came and attacked Jerusalem in the time of Jehoiakim. And this was the first of three attacks against Jerusalem, which culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem and the people of Judah being carried off into exile. It was at this time that Daniel, along with many others from Jerusalem, were removed forcibly from their homes and carried off to exile in Babylon. And this exile lasted for 70 years. 70 years. Now here's what's interesting. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter tells us that Israel's exile in Babylon is a perfect picture of what it means to be Christians in the world today. So when you read about the, the exile in Babylon, when you think about it, you need to keep this in mind. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter tells us that Israel's exile in Babylon is a perfect picture of what it means to be a Christian in the world today. Why is that so? Well, well first of all, it's true because as Christians, we are, number one, temporary residents living in a foreign land. Temporary residents living in a foreign land. We know that this world is not our final destination. Paul the Apostle, he tells us that as Christians, we are people whose citizenship is in heaven, and it is from heaven that we await a Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul also, you know, he tells us that essentially there. Therefore, to be a Christian means to be somebody who is homesick for a home you've never been to yet. You're homesick for a home that you've never been to yet. You know that that's your true home. You long for it in your bones, and yet you haven't been there yet. And so we live in this world knowing that this is not our final destination. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. Well, the other way in which the exile is a picture of what it means to be a Christian in the world today is that in exile, the, the people of God were minorities living in a place where the majority culture was not ruled by them. The majority culture was not ruled by them. They were minorities because the majority of people in Babylon didn't believe what they believed. And Babylonian society was not very accommodating to a person who wanted to walk with God. There were temptations, there were hurdles that made it difficult to live a God-honoring life. And this is similar for us as Christians in the world today. Maybe there was a time when Christianity was the dominant cultural force. 
But in the world we live in today, it's much more similar to Babylon. It's much more similar to Babylon. Here's why. Because Babylon is used throughout the Bible in places like 1 Peter and in Revelation as a metaphor for a culture that celebrates wickedness and is opposed to God. So Babylon is used as a metaphor for a culture that celebrates wickedness and is opposed to God. And the book of Revelation tells us that in the last days, the world will be a lot like Babylon. Well, what was Babylon like? Well, first of all, we know here in Daniel chapter 1 that Babylon had godless leadership. That was the first kind of characteristic we read about them. They had godless leadership. Daniel 1 verse 2 tells us that after Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, he took many of the sacred items from the temple in Jerusalem, and he took them back with him to Babylon, and he placed them on display in the temple of his pagan god, whose name was Marduk. Now understand that by doing this, by taking the sacred items from the temple in Jerusalem, putting them on display in a pagan temple, he was publicly mocking the God of Israel. He was a godless leader. Later on in chapter 3, we read that Nebuchadnezzar built this 90-foot-tall golden statue of himself and ordered that everybody, when he blew the trumpet, everybody had to bow down and worship it or be killed. So he was a godless leader. But it wasn't just that Babylon had godless leadership, but also, here's the other thing about Babylon. They actively sought to convert everyone to their beliefs and practices. They actively sought to convert everyone to their beliefs and practices. In verses 3 through 5, we read this. It tells us that uh, the king ordered Daniel and the other Jews who came with them to be re-educated for three years in the ways of the Babylonians. And this included in their religion. And these young Jewish men, they were given new names in an attempt to strip them of their Jewish identity. And these new Babylonian names, they also reflected what the Babylonians wanted them to believe and wanted them to, to be like. For example, it tells us in verse 7 that Daniel's name was changed from Daniel to Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar. So whereas Daniel means God is my judge, Belteshazzar means Prince of Bel, who was one of the Babylonian gods. And they did the same with the other young men who are mentioned in verses 6 and 7. For example, Hananiah, his name means Yahweh is gracious, but it was changed instead to Shadrach, which means follower of Aku, who was one of the Babylonian gods. Mishael's name was changed from who is like God. The Babylonians changed it to Meshach, which means who is like Aku. Azariah, which means Yahweh is my helper. His name was changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo, another Babylonian god. You see, the exile in Babylon for the Jews at that time was a lot like what it means for us today to live as Christians in the world. But thankfully, we have the examples of people like Daniel and the others who lived faithfully during this period and walked with God even in Babylon. And we can learn from their examples. But here's the really good news. These people at this time, as you look at their story, here's what you realize. They didn't just survive the exile. They didn't just get through it. No, they actually thrived in the midst of the exile. And, and you can too. And that brings us to the next part of our sentence. In exile, 
to thrive. Let's talk about what it means to thrive in exile. Oftentimes, I think when we are facing some kind of difficulty or struggle or hardship, we might say things like, I just need to get through this, right? I just need to grin and bear it and just get through it. And sooner or later, it'll be over. I just need to hold on and get through it. But rather than just surviving the exile, God wanted his people to actually thrive in the midst of the exile. And the same is true for you. Rather than merely just surviving uh, life in the world today or surviving the hardships and difficulties of your life, you can actually thrive even in the midst of difficulties and hardships. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 28, we read about what was happening back in Jerusalem during the time that these people were being taken into exile. And what was happening back in Jerusalem as people were going off and being carried off in waves into exile in Babylon, we read that there were certain prophets on the scene. First of all, in chapter 28, we read that there arose false prophets at this time. And the thing that the false prophets preached was that the exile in Babylon was only going to last for two years. Now, that was an encouraging message. The problem is, it wasn't actually true, and it wasn't from God. But the main proponent of this message was a false prophet named Hananiah. And Hananiah told the people, just hang in there. It's going to be over really soon. It'll only last for two years. Don't even bother to unpack your suitcases, because you're not going to be there for very long. This will be over before you know it. And as you can imagine, this was a very popular message that Hananiah preached. Hananiah was a very popular prophet and speaker. But here's the problem. He was a false prophet. This message was not for God. God had not told him this message. He had come up with it on his own because he knew that this is what the people wanted to hear. Well, in contrast to the false prophecy of Hananiah, in chapter 29 of, of Jeremiah, the very next chapter, Jeremiah came with an actual message from God. And his message was not nearly as popular because here's what Jeremiah told the people. He said, listen, this exile in, in Babylon, it's not going to last for two years. It's going to last for 70 years. And, and therefore, Instead of living out of your suitcases, instead of holding your breath and waiting for it to be over, here's what God wants you to do. Since this exile is not going to be over anytime soon. Here's what he said. I want you to build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. And multiply there. Do not decrease. I want you to hear that last part one more time. Multiply there in Babylon, in exile. Do not decrease. You see, God didn't want them to just survive the exile. He wanted them to thrive and multiply and grow even in the midst of the exile there in Babylon. God promised them that one day the exile would be over. But until that time came, here's what he wanted them to do. Look at what it says in chapter 29, verse 13. He says, seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. What does that mean? It means that in the midst of Babylon, in the midst of that godless society, God was there. And he says, I want you, in the midst of these hardships, the uncomfortableness, the difficulties of living in this godly society, in this godless society, I want you to draw near to me. I want you to seek me and pursue relationship with me. And here's the good news. Many of them did. In fact, the exile turned out to be 
one of the most vibrant times in Israel's history from a spiritual point of view. So rather than just surviving the exile, God wanted them to thrive. And the same is true for you. God doesn't want you to merely survive the, the life that you live right now, the difficulties and hardships, life in the world today. He actually wants you to thrive in the midst of them. He says that you can and that by his strength you will. Here's how James begins his letter in James chapter 1. He writes to those who are reading his letter and he says, listen, Brethren, count it all joy when you face various trials of different kinds because you know that God uses the testing of your faith to accomplish incredible things in your life. You see, Daniel is a great example of someone who didn't just survive the exile. He actually thrived in the exile. And so what do we need for us to thrive in exile ourselves? Well, that brings us back to our sentence. In exile... Thrive, to thrive requires conviction, first of all. It requires conviction. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, we read this. Daniel resolved in his mind. Some translations say he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Daniel made up his mind ahead of time that there were certain things that he wasn't willing to do. There were certain lines that he wasn't willing to cross. There were certain things on which he wasn't willing to compromise. One of those areas was in regard to food. The food that was served there in the king's palace was unkosher, which means it didn't uh, hold up or didn't match up to the dietary requirements prescribed in the law of Moses. And so Daniel said, that's uh, an area where I'm not willing to compromise. That's a line I'm not willing to cross. Th there were other times there in Babylon when Daniel and his friends were unwilling to cross certain lines. For example, in chapter 3, when Nebuchadnezzar built this 90-foot-tall golden statue and ordered everybody to worship it, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said, I'm sorry, but that's not something that we are able to do. That's not something that we're willing to do. In chapter 6, Daniel was told that he was no longer allowed to pray to God. And he was only allowed to pray to the king. And Daniel said, I'm sorry, but that's not something I'm willing to do. You see, in order to thrive in exile, you need to have conviction. And what that means is you need to know who you are and what you believe and what are the lines that you're not willing to cross and what are the values and the things that you're unwilling to compromise on. Here's the, here's the other thing, though, that we learn from Daniel and his friends that always strikes me. On the one hand, they held to their convictions, but on the other hand, they were also very courteous. So they held to their convictions, but at the same time, they were very courteous. I think there are some people who think that to be a person of conviction, right, to have really strong convictions and to hold your convictions means that you have to be a, a jerk for Jesus, right? But I'm here to tell you guys, you can hold to your convictions and not be like that. You can hold to your convictions and still be courteous. Look at what it says in chapter 8, the second half. It says that Daniel asked or requested the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. He was incredibly courteous while at the same time holding to his strongly held convictions. On the one hand, he was very upfront with the people about his faith, about who he was and what he believed and what he was not willing to do. But at the same time, he was also very courteous and polite. Even though the Babylonians were seeking to change his identity and convert him to their beliefs, Daniel didn't treat the Babylonians as if they were his enemies. 
I think this is a really important point because in our day and age, we can get so caught up in this idea of like culture wars, right? And like us versus them and viewing other people as adversaries, right? But here's the thing. Look at what 1 Peter chapter 2 says. Remember, Peter is writing to Christians in his day and he says, here's how to live as exiles in the world today. And here's what he says about how to live as Christian exiles in the world today in chapter 2, verse 12. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors, so that even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and give honor to God when he judges the world. What Peter's encouraging us to do is rather than taking an adversarial approach to people who think differently and believe differently than you do, he's encouraging us to take a missionary approach to those who think and believe differently than you do, your unbelieving neighbors and coworkers and family members. Rather than viewing them as adversaries or enemies because they don't share your beliefs or because there's some kind of culture war, he says, no, no, no. As Christians, the way we do it is we seek to build bridges. We seek to build relationships so that God might bring his love and his truth into people's lives through us. You see, that brings us to the next point. In exile, thriving, to thrive, it requires conviction. It also requires courage. It requires courage. Daniel's refusal to eat this unkosher food here in chapter 1, it worked out pretty well. So he makes a deal in, in verses 11 through 14 with the chief of the eunuchs to allow him and his friends to eat only vegetables and drink only water for 10 days. They go to the chief of the eunuchs, who's the boss of their program that they're in. They say, look, that food that you are serving us, it, it's against our beliefs. So here's what we want to do. Just let us eat only vegetables and drink only water for 10 days, and then take a look and see if we've become emaciated and we're starving to death. And if we're not, then, then let us hold to our convictions and our beliefs. So for 10 days, they eat only water, or they drink only water, and they eat only vegetables. And verse 15 says, at the end of those 10 days, they were fatter than everybody else in their program. This is why when people ask me why I'm not a vegetarian, I tell them it's because I don't want to gain weight, right? See, there are other times, though, when sticking to your convictions requires courage. Sticking to your convictions requires courage. For example, in chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to bow down to this golden image of Nebuchadnezzar and worship. And it says in chapter 3, verse 13, that when Nebuchadnezzar heard that they were unwilling to bow down to his statue, he went into a violent rage, and he threatened to throw them into a fiery furnace. But I want you to see how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego responded. I love their response. Check this out. In Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, it says that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answered the king and they said, if this be so, then our God whom we serve, he is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, we still won't serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Notice what they're saying. They say, our God can save us, and we hope that he will. But you know what? Even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down and worship your gods or this image. That took conviction, but it also took a lot of courage. It took a lot of courage. And for you to thrive in this world, there will be times when you will need courage as well. 
So where can you find the courage you need to face the things that come your way? Well, I'll tell you where, where Daniel and his friends found the courage that they needed to face the things that they faced in their time. They found it from the word of God and the promises of God. In Daniel chapter 2, there's this very interesting story. Here's what happens. You can check it out later. But in Jan Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he needs someone to help him understand this dream that he has. And so in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it was actually a prophetic message for Nebuchadnezzar, but also for everyone else who was listening. Here's what happened in this dream. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he saw the great kingdoms of the world depicted in the form of a giant statue made of different kinds of metal and different kinds of stone. This giant statue that represented the kingdoms of this world. But then, as he's watching in this dream, he notices that, the, that on the side of a mountain, there begins to be cut out of the side of the mountain a small piece of rock. It's a small piece. It looks insignificant. It doesn't look like it's a very big deal, but it's cut out. It says, not by human hands, but by the hand of God. So here's this small piece of rock, and then what happens is that small rock begins to grow and grow, and eventually it rolls down and it wipes out this statue that represents the kingdoms of this world. And the meaning of this dream, Daniel explained, is that one day the kingdom of God will overcome and wipe out the kingdoms of this world. In other words, Babylon will not destroy the kingdom of God. Instead, one day the kingdom of God will overcome Babylon. Now, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said something really interesting, something which I think a lot of people misunderstand when they first read it. I know I did for a long time. Here's what Jesus says. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What is Jesus saying here? Well, I'll tell you what I thought he was saying for a long time. I kind of took it to mean this, that the church will always be under attack, you know, from various political or social movements or, or, or things like that. But no matter what attacks come against the church, what, no matter what happens in society or in politics, Jesus will make sure that the church always survives. That's what I assume that this meant. But you know what? As I've looked at it, as I've studied more, I've realized that he's saying something different there, something which is actually much better. Look, look at what Jesus is actually saying. And remember, what's he talking about? The gates of hell. Well, what's the purpose of a gate? Is a gate, is a gate something you pick up and you, you attack somebody with it, right? Like you, you grab a gate and then you just like go at somebody to attack them? Of course not, right? Like nobody attacks somebody with a gate. A gate is not an offensive weapon. You know what a gate is? It serves a defensive purpose. So what is Jesus saying? The gates of hell. Hell's defenses, in other words. They won't be able to hold back the kingdom of God. Hell will not, the gates of hell will not be able to hold back the onslaught of God's kingdom. So that, that changes things for us as Christians, doesn't it? Rather than taking a posture of being on our heels, being defensive, hunkering down, here's what God is saying. He's saying, look, the kingdom of God is on the offensive. The kingdom of God is moving forward. The kingdom of God is taking ground. And one day, his kingdom will be victorious. All other kingdoms will fall and fail, but the kingdom of God will be established forever, and the gates of hell will not be able to stop it. 
And this is something that gives us incredible courage. You see, Daniel and his friends, where did they get their courage? They got their courage also from the fact that they knew that the day was coming when God would raise them up to everlasting life in his eternal kingdom. Look at what it says in Daniel 12, verses 1 and 2. Write that down. Look at it later. It's a beautiful statement of hope in resurrection and eternal life. Paul the apostle, he says that this same hope, the hope of eternal life, is what gave him the courage to face the hardships and the difficulties and challenges that he faced in his life as well. In the first chapter of his letter to the Philippians, Paul says this, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Because if I die, I know that I will go to be with the Lord. And he says, that is infinitely better. See, when you know that you have nothing to lose because eternal life and God's eternal kingdom awaits you, you know what that does for you? It puts steel in your spine. It fills you with courage, the courage that you need to do the things that God is calling you to do. And that brings us to the final part of our sentence for today, and that's this. In exile, to thrive requires conviction, courage, but it also requires calling. It requires a sense of calling. What the prophet Jeremiah told the people who had gone into exile was that God had a purpose and a calling for them in the exile. Jeremiah told them this in chapter 29, verse 7. He said, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. You see, Jeremiah wanted the people to understand that God had a purpose with sending them into the exile. Part of that purpose was for their own good, because God wanted to do something in them through the exile. But also, God wanted to do something through them. It wasn't just that he wanted to work in them. It was also he had a purpose in what he wanted to accomplish through them during this time. God had taken them to Babylon, this dark, godless place, because he wanted them to shine his light in that dark place to those people. And here's what's so cool. If you look at Daniel chapter 4, you know what happens? As a result of their conviction, as a result of their courage, they have an effect on this king, Nebuchadnezzar. You remember that king, the one who built the statue to himself and killed people who wouldn't bow down? The one who tried to change the names and convert everybody to his pagan religion? The one who mocked God? Well, in chapter 4, because of the conviction and because of the courage of Daniel and his friends, you know what happens? Nebuchadnezzar bows his knee to the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar is humbled before God, and he repents, and he gives glory and honor to the Lord. And friends, I want to tell you this. It's important for you to know that God has a purpose and a calling on your life as well. God has you here right now at this time in this place for a purpose. There are things that he wants to accomplish in you through what you're going through right now. But there are also things that he wants to accomplish through you in the world today. When Jesus prayed for his disciples on the night when he was betrayed, in John chapter 17, we read this prayer that Jesus prayed over his disciples after the Lord's Supper. And in this prayer, it's called the high priestly prayer. Here's part of what he said. He prayed to the Father and he said for his disciples, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. You see, we are called, as, as disciples of Jesus, in other words, to be in the world, but not of the world. And God has a purpose and a calling for your life. There are ways that God wants to work in you, but there are ways that God also wants to work through you to accomplish his good work in the world. And this is why the Apostle Paul, in that same section where he says, for me, it would be better to leave this world and be with God. That would be infinitely better. He concludes that statement, though, by saying this. And yet, I realize that it is better for me to remain here and now because God isn't finished with me yet. There, as long as there's breath in my lungs, there are things that God wants to accomplish through me. He's not done using me. And so I know that my place is here until that time comes. And the same is true for you. As long as you've got breath in your lungs, God has a calling and a purpose in your life. Well, listen, just like watching a football game where you already know what the ending will be, in the same way, God has told us what the final score will be in this game of life. No matter how bleak things might look right now, no matter what the score on the scoreboard at the present moment, God has given us his word that in the end, he will be victorious, that the gates of hell will not prevail. They will not be able to hold back the movement, the forward movement of the kingdom of God. You see, rather than being fearful or timid, we can have incredible confidence because we already know what the final score is going to be. And the reason we can be sure of that is because God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He left his heavenly home in order to come to us. He was mistreated, abused, rejected, and ultimately crucified. Whereas Israel went into exile because of their own sins, Jesus Christ was exiled not for his sins, but for our sins, though he himself never sinned. It took courage for Jesus to face the horrors of the cross where he took the judgment for our sins. But Jesus finished his calling. And in the end, he declared, it is finished. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave, having defeated sin, death, and the devil. And because Jesus fulfilled his calling with conviction and courage, you can have the courage and strength in him to fulfill God's calling on your life as well. So in exile, to thrive requires conviction, courage, and calling. Please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you fulfilled your calling. Lord, that you went to the cross with courage. Lord, thank you for your incredible love for us. Lord, thank you that you endured these things, not because of your sins, but on our behalf. And so, Lord, we're thankful for this. And we ask, Lord, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, enable us to thrive, even in the midst of these days we live in. Lord, to thrive in the midst of the situations going on in our lives. Lord, by giving us the conviction and the courage that we need to fulfill the calling that you've given us. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.